What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, there is a big row building between the government and the travel industry. There's a plan for events on Wednesday to draw attention to the risk to almost 200,000 jobs in the sector from the government's continued restrictions. Now, despite the fastest vaccination programme in Europe, the UK has maintained some of the tightest rules on travel. Meanwhile, The Times is reporting that ministers are set to announce on Thursday that British citizens who've had both doses of the COVID-19 jabs may be able to enjoy more quarantine-free travel from August. So this is a very vexed area. Joining us now is Stephen Crabb, Conservative MP for Priscilla, Pembrokeshire. Stephen, welcome to the programme and thanks for being with us. Now, I appreciate there are different rules in different nations within the UK about travel, but by the nature of this, I suppose they have to be coordinated because someone could travel, I suppose, from Cardiff to Heathrow and potentially fly somewhere and then would come back the same way. How what's the advice being given out to Welsh people about travel at the moment? So you're you're exactly right. Um, there's a fair amount of coordination that is going on between the different nations of the UK. So the rules for for travel in and out of Wales are broadly similar to those applying in England. And the advice from Welsh government is for people generally not to travel uh, unless they have very very good reason to do so, um, work or other. Uh, emergency reasons. I mean, that didn't stop uh, more than a thousand or so Welsh fans travelling to Baku last week for the for the football. Um, so there are clearly Welsh people choosing to travel and, and make use of what freedoms that there are. Um, but this issue of a growing appetite of people wanting to get a bit more freedom, travel abroad, I think that's only going to grow now as the weeks go on through the summer. So doesn't that mean that there should be coordinated action, coordinated and clear uh, action from all four of the nations and regions administrations? I mean, that would, of course, help the travel industry, but it would also help uh, constituents. Yeah, I, I agree. And what would also help the travel industry is getting some clarity about what the the rules are and some predictability as well. So on Friday afternoon, I, I went to see one of my local travel agents, um, an award-winning travel agent. They were voted best in Wales a few years ago. Um, a historic firm have been around for decades, very, very successful. Um, they are right down to skeleton staff. They've made people redundant. They've had a torrid year, and what they're pleading for is some predictability about the rules. They understand that clearly we can't go straight back to to normal, even with the, the success of the vaccination program. But a, a sense of, of allowing consumers to be able to plan their, their holidays coming up would just give confidence to to the marketplace and give confidence to people actually purchasing holidays and that that's one of the biggest pleas from the sector at the moment have you made your holiday plans Stephen? are you going abroad this year 
Uh, we've got no plans. I mean, we're hoping to get across to, to France like last year. But uh, I, I think given the uncertainty that's around uh, and given actually how beautiful West Wales is in the summertime, we don't really feel under any great pressure to, to book anything. Hmm, staycation. Uh, okay. Um, what about uh, other issues then, Stephen? Big promises from the Prime Minister on science spending, but with spending on big post-pandemic projects versus balancing the books, this is a really difficult moment. Is the Prime Minister promising too much? Well, it is a government that has raised the expectations of uh, of what public spending can achieve. And don't forget, this was a government elected with a big mandate in 2019 to do levelling up. And, and that if you're going to do levelling up, you're going to have to spend money. It's about redistribution. It's about investing in infrastructure and, and big projects uh, around the UK. So that is actually at the core of what this government is all about. Um, but we are conservatives and conservatives are, are people who are very mindful of public spending and need to actually have a sustainable and ordered set of national finances. So there is this tension within government, within the party about you know, how, how bold and ambitious should the spending plans be and the need for some, for, for some uh, tighter restraint. Um, and that's in, in a sense, that's a feature of every government. Every government have, has those tensions built into it. Uh, but I think from a backbencher's point of view, I think what me and my colleagues are looking for from the Prime Minister and from Rishi Sunak is a real clear joined up approach to our national finances. Yeah. And, you know, we showed back in, the, in, the, in 2010, the days of the coalition, what could be achieved in taking very difficult decisions about public spending. When, when you have a very clear plan, when you communicate that clearly, you, can't, you can take difficult decisions and, and bring the public with you. And I think there's a feeling on the backbenches of, of, of us really wanting the government to come forward and give us a sense of clarity about what the, 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 the national strategy is for our finances and uh, where we can spend more and, and those areas where we're going to have to, to cut back and make well, clear arguments to the public about why we need to cut back. Well, yes, I mean, you talked about joined up thinking in terms of spending. I mean, just for example, something like the, the mess over the new Royal Yacht doesn't seem to suggest that. I mean, the it's now the tab's now going to be picked up, it seems, by the Ministry of Defence, uh, which is already under a lot of pressure, as we know. I mean, it's not a defence asset, really. A lot of this doesn't make sense and seems to be being done on the hoof. Well, that project that you highlight, I think, is a bit of an exception. It is an oddity, and there's many of us who don't really understand where it's come from, that proposal, and um, where, where it naturally sits. And we're a bit sceptical if we're... If, and I'm certainly in that camp. I'm, I'm, I'm a sceptic when it comes to that new, uh, that new ship. Um, but um, elsewhere across government, there does need to be coordination. And you know, the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Prime Minister do have a very, very good relationship. This is not like the days of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, where they were barely on speaking terms. There is a good relationship at the heart of government. And a lot of these problems, it shouldn't be too difficult to, to work out a clear plan of action. When it comes to much more complicated policy challenges, like fixing the national social care system, that is profoundly yeah. difficult. And, and you, can, you can understand why there's just so many stumbling blocks around, around with that. Yes, I mean, I get what you're saying about the yacht, but absolutely to say that it's easy to solve social care or indeed to um, deal with the public finances after the worst economic crisis in 300 years, um, that's pretty challenging. Even if Sunak and Johnson get along, it's absolutely vital that the rebound in the economy is strong, um, 
These are very, very difficult times. There are going to be many difficult spending decisions. Yeah, 100% agree with that. What, what I would say, though, is I don't personally feel that um, the Chancellor needs to be under enormous pressure right now to take some of those difficult decisions. Um, the economy is rebounding fairly strongly, but it's at a very early, fragile state. Uh, so the Chancellor shouldn't be doing things that, that, that kicks away the, the legs from underneath that recovery, so to speak. Um, but difficult decisions will be required further down the line. But um, you know, the most recent set of economic data was actually quite positive. And if you look at the OBR's latest forecasts for the, the debt that's been piling up, it is actually less, significantly less uh, than what they'd forecast. So there are some, some reasons to be optimistic. Um, but as you suggest, great care, care, great care does need to be taken. Stephen, let me ask you then about, you talked about the government having been elected with a huge majority, which it was, with a lot of promises. Some of that feeling seems to be being ebbing, not least in perhaps some more traditional areas. For example, the Cheshire and Amersham by-election is an obvious one. And also, in fact, of course, what happened in Wales. I mean, the last elections weren't a great success for the Tories. I mean, is it time to change the message that you're putting out? No, I, I don't think so. I, I was in Chesham, uh, spent a bit of time there for the by-election. It felt to me very much like a kind of classic mid-term by-election. Um, uh, I mean, I don't think anybody should read into that result um, any great re- reason to, 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 to be worried about um, my party's prospects. Um, um, and that's not to be complacent, but that had all of the makings, that constituency had all of the makings for a a big by-election upset. There were a lot of very uh, localised factors there, HS2, some of the planning issues, a very strong Lib Dem campaign. Um, but um, for me, you know, the bigger challenges I think the government do need to address, and that applies right across the United Kingdom, um, is around property ownership, home ownership for younger families. That's one of the, the, those issues that if we don't fix, um, then that's going to spell big problems, I think, for my party in in the future, which is one of the reasons why I think actually the government's plans around the planning system and freeing up more space for new homes to be built is, is exactly the right the right policy. The right policy, but absolutely um, rejected by people, you know, in the leafy areas surrounding London who don't want to see more planning. Um, and, I, and I'm sure that you're at the sharp end in Wales because it's the area in the UK that's seen the biggest house price jump uh, as people sort of leave London. So again, putting more pressure on young home buyers. I mean, how does the government square this and definitely not built enough new homes? Yeah, uh, and it's a, a challenge that's been running through our political system for years now. Um, and the problem is that if you ask somebody on their doorstep, do you believe in building more homes so that young families get a chance to get on the property ladder, they will nod their head and give an unequivocal yes. When it comes to the question of are you happy to have new homes built in your neighbourhood, people get a lot a lot more, more worried. And I'm afraid the government's just going to have to be stronger and clearer in communicating a message about why this is needed and building public support around that. And one of the frustrations I think that's that's been coming across from my backbench colleagues, um, a lot of it isn't actually opposition to the policy per se. It's an opposition to some of the mixed messages that have been coming out from the party and just a desire for to get us on a much stronger front foot with this policy and being able to communicate it clearly so that the public can see what we're trying to do. We're actually trying to do something good for the country, which is give younger families and younger people a chance to, to get on the property ladder and own their own home.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. But let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. Now, five years on from the Brexit referendum, the UK still remains deeply divided over leaving the EU. A new study of 2,000 adults by the National Centre for Social Research shows that if polled again, 82% of people would vote exactly the same way they did back in 2016. The findings show that Boris Johnson still has much to do to convince Remain voters of the merits of leaving the bloc. The study also found that if the referendum were to be held again today... Remain would win by 53% to 47%. Hmm, so we haven't changed much then in those five years. Well, let's talk about uh, politics in Northern Ireland. Geoffrey Donaldson has confirmed that he is standing to be the next leader of the DUP. The Langan Valley MP is not expected to be opposed, which should mean that he'll be confirmed in the role on Saturday. Donaldson narrowly lost in the recent leadership contest to Edwin Poots, who stood down after just 21 days following a party revolt. Well, Northern Ireland's largest party has gone through a pretty tumultuous period since the ousting of the then leader and the Northern Ireland First Minister Arlene Foster, which took place in late April. Now, teaching pupils about white privilege could be breaking the law by contributing to the systemic neglect of deprived children. A Commons Education Committee report says white working class pupils are one of the worst achieving groups in the country and feel anything but privileged. It also warns against pitting different groups against each other. The committee chairman, Robert Halfen, called on ministers to stop sweeping the problem under the carpet and find ways to close this attainment gap. Right, so those are some of the news stories in the world of politics today. Well, let's move on because for months at the start of the pandemic here in the UK, scientists, the people who were behind the advice to the government, uh, were essentially remained unnamed. Patrick Vallance, the chief scientific advisor, argued in a letter to Parliament that scientists were protected by that anonymity from lobbying and other forms of unwanted influence. It was only on the 4th of May 2020 that the list of the members of the scientific advisory group for emergencies was actually published. And while SAGE reportedly consults about 20 members at any one meeting, the presence, for example, of government officials in those meetings remains secret. Well, joining us now is Paul Thacker, an investigative journalist focused on science and medicine who's conducted research for the US Congress, been widely published in uh, many uh, contexts around scientific ethics in the British Medical Journal, JAMA, Washington Post, New York Times, a whole list I could go on. But Paul has also looked into SAGE and uh, what the government here is and is not publishing. Paul, welcome to the programme. Thanks so much for being with us. Now, there is this list of SAGE participants, including a list of their interests that is now being published on the government website. Uh, is this really enough to give the public confidence and transparency, in your view? Well, they're not publishing the interests of every person. So when they first started publishing these in response to an investigation that I ran for the BMJ in uh, December of last year, um, they began releasing some of them. Some people have still not filled out forms. And my guess is, I didn't get a chance to look at those forms, but usually the requirements are that you report 
financial interest going back 12 months, which most experts on financial influence in uh, science and medicine will tell you that that's just not long enough. So what do we actually know about who's on SAGE? She's actually advising the government. What, what is now in the public arena? So we know some of the names. We know um, we now this, – this, this issue, is, this has been a long sort of – they were – SAGE was brought basically into the sunlight kicking and screaming. This was a long process that played out over, over all of last year with initial denials that, you know, that they had to disclose names and eventually – that became kind of too ludicrous and eventually had to disclose names and eventually meetings, some of the minutes, and then finally towards the end, some of the conflict of interest. But some of the um, issues surrounding SAGE to this day, there are still conflicts within SAGE, for instance, like how should it be made up? So who should the experts be? Because you can get different answers depending upon what type of experts you draw from. Do you draw from medicine? Do you draw from public health, from infectious diseases? So that can give you different answers depending upon the makeup of SAGE and who these people are. Well, I suppose that the government would argue that this is a group for emergencies at a time when, um, you know, government is under pressure or when unexpected things happen. They want to be able to make up this um, team of people with those that they feel are most capable at that particular stage of an emergency. Um, And what do you make also of the argument that the chief scientific officer has put forward that actually it's the anonymity of these advisors that allows allows them perhaps to tell the government quite difficult things. I think, I think that's a, um, a great joke. Um, what we know is that special interests always know what, what is going on inside a government. It's the public that's usually kept out and left in the dark. And so to pretend that somehow like not disclosing these things helps for better advice, that's never been shown in any way. What we know through, again, through scientific peer-reviewed research, right, through studies looking at financial influence, is that in fi- money, believe it or not, not that hard to understand, actually helps to shape people's perceptions. And so we want to know what those financial I- interests might be so that we can understand why we might be getting certain answers. Now, one of the interesting things about this is that the government officials who are in these meetings are not named. Um, and we do know, because uh, he told us, that Dominic Cummings, uh, the right. senior advisor who had been there, did actually sit in on these meetings. That's, uh, that, that's on the public record now. But is, is not naming the government officials a, a big part of the problem? I, I don't understand. I mean, look, here's the problem. Um, you never get – we've also been sold this idea of follow the science, which is just kind of silly. You never follow the science. Now, the reason why we know this is with SAGE, there's been some arguments that SAGE should be independent. you got the quotes around that. The issue is that SAGE does not go out and just figure out what it wants to do. It is asked specific questions from the government that it then responds to. So from the beginning, it's never independent because it only gives advice based upon the questions that it's asked. Now, at some point in time, after you get a scientific opinion, other things then enter in, economic, politics, um, uh, public interest. All those kinds of things can come in and enter in. But why you have government officials in the meetings when the science is being discussed really does not make a whole lot of sense. You want to have the scientists be able to discuss something within their group and then give that to the government. And then the government puts in all these other things, you know, the economics the policy issues, the, the internal politics between parties. 
Mm. I've just never understood why they were government officials and why they were politicals involved from the beginning. Yeah, no, and this mantra, you're absolutely right. It's become a real slogan, you know, um, following the science, relying on the science, and it's, uh, you know, it does really need to be unpacked. Do you think, though, that we're going to learn more about Sage's advice? Because, for example, this issue now has gone on for so long that airlines may well sue for more information about exactly what the advice is. I mean, obviously, they're concerned around their business interests and the travel advice. But are we going to actually see more publication of what Sage's advice is to the government? That that might be. But the the, the issue that we, we have is even if we get the scientific advice, right? So science is just one part of the equation that determines scientific policy, right? There's all these other things that are also brought in, politics, economics, public will, and those kinds of things. So we see only the science, and then we see at the end the answer, which is the government policy. We don't know all these other inputs that went into the equation to determine that government policy. So you can't just say the scientist said this and you did this, therefore you're wrong, because you don't know what else was involved in making that government policy. And those things are actually totally opaque. So we only will know the science, but nothing else that was determined in making the government policy. And those might be the things that we need to learn a little bit more about. I suppose people listening to this, Paul, might say, well, well, hang on, if it ain't broke, why fix it? Because although, God knows, a lot of mistakes were made in Britain's response to the pandemic, in the end, the general sort of conclusion out there now is that with the vaccination rollout, the improvement of various systems, we are actually on the right course. And people say, well, that's a result of the system that we have working properly. Or you can also argue that the vaccines came along at the last minute and saved a disastrous government policy. Look, um, it's the BMJ ran an editorial. The the number of the, the rate of mortality in the UK was kind of ridiculous. It was incredibly high, um, and there were policies that could have been put into place to limit those numbers of people who died before the vaccines came along to suddenly save everyone. And so, what we need to think about is what policies happened that were broken that so many people died. Not that isn't it great now that it's done because you know, there's still a lot of people who died. And maybe, and probably a large number of them didn't need to. Uh, does all of this come out in the public inquiry that we're promised uh, soon? So that I'm not aware. I don't understand the entire British system that well and how it works. And what, like, I can tell you the American system. I mean, definitely there does need to be an inquiry. But what, how the internal policies of that play out and whether the British public actually learns something, I'm, I don't know. That I can't answer because the the British system is very hard for me to understand. And um, I just see statements being put out in the media, but we don't, we almost seem to never learn what happened internally within Parliament. And, you know, it just seems this almost closed off. Bloomberg Westminster, listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.